0: Hi, this is Ben Bova. I've written a lot of science fiction, and I think that I've devoted my life to trying to understand the opportunities and the dangers of the future. And if you listen to Sci-Fi Saturday Night, you'll begin to understand a lot of that, too. We will begin a mass invasion. Tell your people to surrender now, and avoid war.
1: Don't think you get me so easily! It is now time for us to put Earth under our It It's
2: make a duty to tell us the truth. Confess, confess that you will give me a witchcraft.
1: you expect me to believe that you can overrun the entire world? We cannot be defeated. We have never been defeated. That is the message.
2: Yeah, they're dead. They're all messed up. Sci-fi Saturday night.
1: Welcome yet again to another Area 51 recording of Sci-Fi Saturday Night, the only podcast to guarantee that if you listen, you get to hear stuff. Now, you don't doesn't happen very often with other podcasts. It's a lot of sound and fury signifying nothing. In this case, tonight, you're really going to get to hear some stuff. So hang around. This week it's episode 480, and it's another pandemic countdown day here, although the word is, I've heard that we're getting closer. So stick out your arm, get it stuck, take a shot, you schmuck, and let's get this thing over with. Meanwhile, it's another quarantine day here in Area 51. Tonight, space stuff, and frankly, I can't wait. So we're still in social distancing show mode and because the whole world is caught up on on Zoom and, and, you know, frankly, I'm sick of Zoom. I don't know about you. I'm sick of Zoom. I'm sick of talking to people and and watching the stutter steps. So, like, I want to get to the point where I can actually talk to somebody face to face. So I've got Commander Cam in his plastic bubble here in Area 51. Commander Cam, how are you doing tonight?
2: I'm doing good. You know, the, the bubble is actually rather cozy, you know, and you know, the captain crunch that I put in there, you know, a few episodes back is, you know, only down to my ankles now. So, you know, might need to restart that on
1: the heating lamp the other day. And I'm, I'm sorry about that.
2: Oh, Uh, don't worry. I, I discovered, you know, that I don't uh, need it all the time, you know? Okay, good.
1: good, 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 good. We're getting close to episode 500 and, uh, I know that the planning is go along swimmingly for that. Um, so where are we at with that?
2: Is this another failed attempt to try to figure out what your special gift is? Always. Oh, okay. Well, I hate to break that to you, but you're not going to find out. In fact, I have uh, certain individuals have sworn me to secrecy that I can't tell you anything or divulge anything. But I will say that there are plans. In fact, that's all, uh, not. I'm not I'm not going to say it. put the taser away, please. No, no. Oh, OK. All right. I won't say any more. OK, so we're, I think we're good.
1: OK, let's first just, of all, let's just, that let's wasn't just say, a taser.
2: <laughs> it. Oh, God, that wasn't. OK. All right. All right. OK,
1: well, we're, we can make a, a ton of that wasn't a taser jokes later, but that's okay. for later. OK. Anyhow, tonight. Um, somebody handed me a book last week and said, Dome, you're going to love this book. And I said, yeah, I've heard this before. And I read the first 50 pages and I said, who wrote this book? (laughs) And I went, yeah, so send me the bio and the bio starts with I'm a physicist and computer scientist among other things. And I went okay, I am intrigued. And I loved the book and I loved the the about page and the more I read about the guy and the more I read about the book, ah, uh, holy crap. And now I would love to introduce The guy who I just kept going holy crap about, Edward
0: M. Lerner. Ed, welcome to Sci-Fi Saturday Night. Thanks for having me, Dome and Cameron. I'm uh, looking forward to a good conversation. And besides, holy crap. Yeah. A wonderful blurb. Holy crap, man. The book is
1: called Deja Doomed. And uh, can I just say? Holy crap, this is a great book. You can say. I did. And I think I'm going to say it like maybe 15 or 20 more times before we're done. Man, you know, it's hard um, to find a good, sweet, sweet spot, hard science fiction book anymore. That's just great. It's not space opera. It's not, it's, it's, it's not, it's just great science fiction in, in the best definition of it. And then I I had to figure out where did this come from? Well, where did this come from? It came from, man, your background and all the stuff that you've done, you know, with, with Larry Niven prior to this and, and, and all of your other, uh, your interstellar net series, which I hadn't known about and your Company Man books, and and your The Dark Secret, and all the rest. And, man, why
0: the hell didn't I know about you? What, what rock was I hiding under? <laughs> Holy shit. Tangent Online, you know, that review site, calls me the best science fiction author you've never heard of. Man, did
1: they have you right? I mean, what the hell? I mean, Hugo Award... I, I've, All the awards that you've won, what
0: the hell? I mean, good for you. Let's be fair. I was only nominated for a Hugo. I haven't won one yet. Okay. Maybe hikers.
1: (laughs) And I mean, during all this time, you've actually got the bona fides of, of doing shit. I mean, you actually did stuff.
0: I was a NASA contractor for seven years. During all of that time, I was too darn busy to write much. Talk about injustice.
1: Ah, and you were a physicist. You were a computer scientist. I mean, and I mean, being able to do that before you were decided to become a writer. Or Or maybe while you were writing, or maybe it. Inspired you to write, you got the theory down so that as you began to write, you knew what the hell you were writing about. That was the goal. I mean, how dare you get the facts right while you're putting this shit together?
0: Should I slap my hand? No, I mean, what you should do (laughs) is go, Well, son of a bitch, you did it the right way. You know, uh, there's a long tradition of science fiction, of scientists becoming science fiction authors. There sure the hell is, but those are always
1: the good ones. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, we were talking about that before, you know, we we started the tape rolling. I I mean, like if we actually roll tape anymore, which we don't, that's another story. And we were talking about that. I mean, for every, you know, 10 or 20 writers who like, make it up as they go along, there's always those great writers who will say, yeah, yeah, we don't make it up. We, you know, we, we do it that way because we know
0: that's how it works. There's that, but there's more to it, at least for me. When you pay attention to the real science and how the world really works, everything for the poor characters becomes harder and the harder life is for the characters the more interesting the story gets but as you as you write it there's this there's this edge and
1: it's called reality and you realize as a reader if you've got half an ounce of brain in you that there's this grounding of reality in what you're reading that you, and you're going Damn it! This this is there's this this is real. I That's mean, what I'm going for. There, there's there's a foot reality and a foot in the future, and they're inextricably linked yeah. together. And as <clears throat> as I'm reading Deja Doomed, <clears throat> a part of me is going, Oh crap! You fool, don't press that button. You know what's going to happen because I can see it from here.
0: <laughs> don't go down into the basement by yourself. That's right.
1: You know Pretty much. Gonna,
0: you know what's going to happen. <clears throat> I so, defy you to know what's going to happen, but you'll come to that. Mm-hmm. So...
1: What made you what made you start in the world of computers oh
0: those many years ago? Funny story. I was a physics major and the university had several different programs under which you could be a physicist. There was a program in liberal arts and sciences and engineering, even in the Department of Education. And who knew that at the time I applied for college? I was plunked into the engineering physics program, which had two requirements that really did not appeal to me. Mechanical drawing and computer science 101. And I thought, this computer thing is a flash in the pan. That's how I am. But you know, by my junior year, I came to my senses and thought, yes, I probably should take a computer course or two. By the end of that first semester, I knew I was going to change directions in life. I was good with physics, I enjoy physics, I'm fascinated with it still, but with computers, I was intuitive. And uh, it would have been nuts not to make the switch.
1: So it just to you
0: came to you. It was just you felt comfortable in that world. Very much. The first paragraph of my first computer science textbook said something like The thing about computers is they do exactly what you tell them. Not what you mean, but what you tell them. They're high speed electric morons. <laughs> You know, it's
1: funny because I remember somebody telling me that my freshman year of college. And I went, I'll never get this because I'm as dumb as they are. (laughs) And it turns out I was right. I was as dumb as they were.
0: So the good news is they're getting smarter all the time.
1: I know. I know. And it it never fails to amaze me how dumb I can be and how, how smart a computer can be. So how did you go from that to working at Bell Labs?
0: Bell Labs was my first job out of the university. And it was one of just a handful of companies that really appealed to me. Um, when I was in my last year of uh, my master's in computer engineering program, I took an independent study uh, unit on computer memories. And damned if uh, Bell Labs didn't hire me to work on computer memories. So uh, well, you were right there. There yes, you go. It, it was pretty straightforward. Bell Labs uh, back in the day was just a totally amazing place to work for. This was before AT&T split up into uh, a million little pieces, which then mixed and merged and got scattered all over the place. And from there,
1: somehow you ended up somehow involved with NASA.
0: I did indeed. Well, the thing about uh, telephone systems is they're real-time control systems, which means when someone dials a phone number or places a call or hangs up, or does anything with the phone system and millions of these things are happening simultaneously, uh, the phone system only has milliseconds to respond. And those characteristics apply to all sorts of applications, not only to telephones. So they applied to uh, building control systems, uh, which is how I wound up at Honeywell. Uh, they apply to anything to do with space, which is how I wound up at Hughes Aircraft, which was the NASA contractor. They apply to um, any big uh, data mining system, which is how I wound up at Northrop Grumman doing some work for the FBI.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> yeah.
0: So the underlying technology has lots of applications, not just NASA, but uh, For a science fiction author or a would-be science fiction author, you can't beat NASA. It turns out when I wrote my first novel, I finished the first draft before uh, I made the switch over to NASA contracting. But by the time the book made it through the publication process, then I was working uh, for Hughes Aircraft for NASA. So how did that, how did that, how did one affect the other for you? the experience affect the writing? Yeah. Well, it exposed me to a lot more detail about how the aerospace industry works than I would have gotten just reading. It uh, gave me exposure to actual NASA employees and how their minds work and uh, what's important to them. I can't say I got to know any astronauts super well, but I... Did meet a couple. I did use a lot of the NASA training equipment. So back in the day, there was a space shuttle. There was of course a- There was. <laughs> a flight simulator to go with it. And Hughes Aircraft uh, was the contractor that developed the uh, the flight simulator. So after hours, a couple times, I got to fly it. Now the damn thing has the aerodynamic properties of a brick. It does. Yes, it so did. yes. So it's more accurate to say I simulated crashing the shuttle than flying it. <laughs> but still, it was a learning experience. <clears throat> I walked through the uh, the huge uh, training simulator for what became the International Space Station, and that was keen. I took a pass on using the simulator for training on using a space toilet. The first step in the instructions for the space toilet are load film. (laughs) What? That sounds, yeah. Okay. I wonder how many of those are now on YouTube. Uh, Hopefully none, but okay. Hopefully. But yes, there was a lot of synergy between being a NASA contractor and, um, Eventually writing books, some of whose characters uh, were NASA people, as in Deja Doomed, in fact.
2: Yep.
1: So let's, let's talk for a little bit about uh, the book itself, which actually doesn't come out for another three weeks. May twenty-five. Oh, May 25th. Um, Deja Doomed is set on the far side of the moon.
0: Uh, Part of the book on the far side. It'll dribble over onto the near side and then into uh, places more exotic. But I'm not going to be more specific.
1: No, please don't. And it is set on a moon in the near future where settlements have occurred. Yes. And the settlements are primarily government driven uh, and... Not only government driven, but also uh, uh, kind of super secret government driven as well. In part, so not not only not only is uh, the American there there is a, an American enclave, but part of that American enclave is also. Uh, run by the CIA and it, part of the Russian mm-hmm. enclave is run by their super secret numer- numeraries as well so that nothing is quite always as it seems uh, I, and
0: mm-hmm. I would clarify uh, a detail it's sure. not so much that the intelligence agencies are running these bases as in one case um They have agents embedded and in another case, a different agency has a former asset embedded. So
1: uh, true, okay, I'll buy that. So that everything is not always quite as it seems all the time for everyone. Correct. And on top of that, there is a, a motivating force in that there is a surprise that they find, and that is that in mining they find an archeological artifact. Yes. And the question then becomes, what is to be done with this archeological artifact found on the moon?
0: And who can, t- who can take best advantage of it? And who will take
1: best advantage of it the quickest? Yes. To the, to the advantage of the other governments and agencies. Yes, Um, before other things happen. Uh, and it is not only a taught thriller, uh, but a great interesting science fiction novel, but also, uh, a kind of the mummy's curse kind of novel as well. Uh, and, uh, Without spoilers of any kind, I'm just going to go, I was so caught up in all of the different permutations of from Earth to the moon, to the archaeological points of it, to the science parts of it, to the science fiction parts of it, to, my God, uh, how did you keep a Bible going for all of this? Because it, it is... Uh, layer upon layer upon layer of stuff going on through this. It's very complex piece of work.
0: It has an intricate plot. Uh, Yes, I had to keep a fair amount of outlining to keep straight what I was doing. Uh, One of the things that I strive for in writing is not to have good guys and bad guys, but to have characters with different interests and motivations and needs none of whom ever are privy to the whole picture. And so everyone is doing what they think best, but that doesn't mean they're getting along, and generally they don't, because they have conflicting interests. And then the story un- unwinds, you know, peeling layers of the metaphorical onion as people find out more, or at least think they find out more.
1: the story reveals itself um, very slowly, which I enjoyed. Um, and it reveals itself in a very realistic way uh, in, in having a friend who is an archeologist um And going through that dig the way you've done it on the moon, uh, which is in and of itself, very interesting. Go ahead, I'm sorry.
0: Okay, what I was going for was to start with a slow pace and then a little faster and a little faster in the mode of a horror movie, building the suspense for a while you just suspect and you think you know what's going on and there will be surprises and then you think you know what's going on and there's a different surprise and all the while the stakes and I won't say what the stakes are keep getting more and more higher and uh, higher, higher, right. higher yeah mm-hmm.
1: it's it's i mean you've you've done a terrific job with this book and i can't i can't tell you how much I appreciate the thought that went into not just not just the different ways that it got plotted out, but the way in which you put the characters together as well. I mean, the the Russian characters that are involved. um, This may sound redundant, but are very Russian. (laughs) Good (laughs) Uh, to know. And and the American, they, they rang true. And I mean, there's there's very. There are very easy ways to make them become very mechanical, and they didn't come off that way at all. Ekaterina, uh, for one, uh, came mm-hmm. off as
2: uh, just wonderful. Thanks. I think sometimes, I think sometimes the relationships between Yevgeny and his equivalent Marcus seems to be very interesting. The way it's. It's they, 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 they're looking at one another, especially in Yevgeny's case. And am I pronouncing that correctly?
0: I think so. I'm not a native oh, Russian okay. speaker.
2: All right. So so if, they, if there's somebody out there listening, maybe they can correct me. But uh but the 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 way that these characters interact and the way they're kind of trying to feel each other out, and especially in the case of Yevgeny, you have whole segments of, of where he's looking at Marcus and going, Are you doing this for this reason? Are you, you know, are you spying on us at the same time we're trying to spy on you? Are you doing the same things we're doing? And it's this wonderful little dance that he's doing with Marcus, and Marcus is to a lesser degree doing with him. It's just, it's so much fun. It's almost like, you know, it's it's almost like a, a buddy sort of thing is being formed there in a very weird sort of way. And I just love that relationship you created between those two characters. Thanks.
0: Yeah, they were they were fun to write and their uh, evolving relationship was fun to write.
1: I'm wondering if this is part of a new uh, kind of setting for you of uh, uh, putting books uh, on the moon, uh, on other planets in in the near future coming up?
0: I have done both near future and far future. So this isn't a, a total uh, exception, but uh, recently I've uh, focused more on near future stuff.
1: Because this is this is truly great fun uh, for me thus far. And as I said, only about two-thirds of the way through the book. So I'm speaking at a disadvantage right now. Um, it's so much fun. So much fun. But I'm going to take you off topic for a minute. Because uh, knowing where you are, uh, knowing what your background is, and knowing what your your feelings are about space and and uh, the current set of the world and everything, I'd like to talk to you about NASA uh, and where we are in the world right now and talk to you maybe a little bit about Mars and how you feel about where we are and what we're going through as as a species and our current state of exploration, how you're feeling about that.
0: Oh, a simple topic then. Exactly. Yeah. An easy okay. one. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, certainly the recent batch of uh probes not just uh, from NASA but from uh China and uh, where was the third one from Europe, I think? Uh, I think it's arriving it
1: was the
0: at you, yeah. Yeah, arriving at Mars recently is just tremendous. Um and uh, the, the missions are getting more and more sophisticated, uh, more and more complex. Uh, it's not like we're going to be landing people there next week, but we are taking steps in that direction. I think the biggest variable uh, these days is the debate between going to Mars direct, which is what the Mars Society advocates for, or whether to go by first setting up a base on the moon and uh, taking off from there.
1: The complexity of what we've been able to do in the past five years alone is just absolutely mind-blowing. Just on this last five days alone, to be able to fly on the face of Mars, number one, and to be able to uh, produce oxygen on the surface of Mars.
0: Producing oxygen is neat. Now the process that they used is very energy intensive.
1: Yep, absolutely.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it involves heating the carbon dioxide to 800 degrees Celsius in order to split it, even in the presence of a catalyst. So, it remains to be seen how how much that will help as far as colonizing Mars, because you need a lot of energy to generate that much heat if you need mm-hmm. to generate a lot of oxygen for a lot of people. But as a demonstration project, it's a start. Um, I imagine you read the Andy Weir book, The Martian.
1: Absolutely.
0: Yeah. And... Uh, One of the things brought out in that book, although sometimes uh, soft-pedaled, was when you have uh, most of your energy coming from solar panels and you have months-long dust storms, you could have some severe energy shortages. Mm -hmm. So if you need an awful lot of energy to generate the oxygen you, you hope to breathe when you settle Mars, You really need more dependable energy than uh, solar panels that might be covered in dust. So I I think,
1: you know, when somebody says you created enough oxygen using so much energy for 10 minutes for one human being. Yes, that's exactly what we did.
0: However, we did it. Yeah. Oh, it's a it's a great start. I was just trying to make the point that that we have several other steps to go through before we get there. And the reality is,
1: is that. You do one thing for the first time, then you figure out how to do it better.
2: (laughs) It's almost a proof of concept Uh, it just proves we can do it now. Let's figure out how to do it so that it's efficient. And we can actually, you know, survive there. So, yeah, it's, it's a first step.
1: And 10 yeah. years ago, that was the pipe dream.
0: Yeah. Now, we've been talking primarily about the unmanned side of NASA. Right. On the the manned and womaned side, the progress a person, seems a whole lot. For- yeah. I prefer the term crude. But there you go. That's but fair. Yes, but unless uh, I spell it, it can be uh, misunderstood. <laughs> That's also true. Yeah. So, you know, for uh, 10 years or so, maybe a little more, the United States had no ability to put human beings in space except to buy increasingly expensive rides from the Russians. Sure. We're just getting back to a capability we had decades ago with, uh, with small capsules. So that's the negative side of things. The certainly very positive side of things is the private space sector that NASA is now buying its rides from. SpaceX has gone from not even existing to uh, incredible capabilities in just a few years. And that's really a company to keep your eye on,
1: and it's one of two or three companies that's now working its way into the private space arena, where hopefully hopefully uh, partnering with nasa we can uh, we can look towards a future where things can move us out into
0: um, where we once were and back again. And well beyond that, you know, the uh, Apollo missions were, uh, they only happened because we were in a Cold War competition with the Russians and people wanted the prestige of saying, we got to the moon first and we planted a flag. It was a boots and flags mission. It'll be a whole different ball of wax to try to have a permanent base there.
1: And it's what what people now are beginning to understand. I hope is it's a fragile world that we live in, and. The exploration is what brings us together.
0: It's also what keeps us from having all of our eggs in one basket. Mm. I am reasonably optimistic that the climate crisis we're in will eventually be solved. There is lots of good science and good creativity in that direction. But if I'm wrong, it would be nice to think we have uh, people established elsewhere. <laughs> it's
1: always a great idea.
0: That's supposedly been Elon Musk's motivation for founding SpaceX. He apparently had an interview recently where uh, he pointed out very candidly that uh, the first people on Mars are going to have a decent chance of dying but uh, that that's part of exploration
1: there's always a risk involved yes but the risk involved in not trying is always greater
0: yeah sorry go go ahead ahead. no no go ahead please that was so long ago I forget what I was going (laughs) to (laughs) say
2: there's one one of the things that Sorry, Dom.
0: No, go right ahead, Cam.
2: No, because one of the things that you do do bring up, and I think it's really cool, and and this is definitely not spoiling anything in the book, but it was one of the cool things I liked about it was that one of the other problems we have is here on Earth, if we just sit here for the rest of our lives as the human race, um, we have only limited resources here. To a point, you know, because we mo- use things up, it's harder to extract those resources to make something new. And the I, one of the ideas, one of the reasons, you know, all of these groups, both countries and the Aitken A, a-, a- T K E N Aitken Group, or it's that corporation you created in, there that's on the South Pole, that uh, that I think it was like a, it's an international oh, it's commercial
0: Aitken, Aitken Basin is not a company, it's a geographic feature.
2: Oh, okay, I'm sorry.
0: That's fine, it's a place around the South Pole, a very deep uh, basin, and because it's at the pole, sunlight never touches it. Because Ah. sunlight never touches it, ice can persist there for eons. And in fact, in recent years, we have discovered There is ice down there. It's so cold in the absence of any sunlight that not only can ice not melt, it cannot sublimate. And if we're going to colonize the moon, we need water both to drink and for oxygen and hydrogen for fuel. And you get that by mining the ice uh, at the Aitken Basin at the South Pole.
2: Ah, okay. See, that was where I got a little confused. Thank you very much. I appreciate that clarification. But yeah, it's it's this place where you know all these people are doing this stuff, mining the ice. And then you have other people, like right at the very first chapter, is a virtual prospector who's sitting on Earth, and he's rented this droid that's now co- you know going out over the over the uh, the moon looking for scraps of. Uh, of basically what our meteorite strikes on the backside of the moon, you know, that's all these materials. And one of the things I really enjoyed about this book is it says there is a possibility if we're willing to move out from the from the world we're on right now towards the moon, towards Mars, towards the asteroid belt, there are materials out there that we can use to continue to build and to continue to grow and to continue to move outward. And that was one of the things I loved that was just such a positive takeaway from just even the first half of the book or the first third of the book. And I was curious, if you had to look in your crystal ball, how far out do you think that is where we could start, you know, realistically believing we could, you know, start excavating or mining the, the moon or mining some of these places? How far out do you think we are? I mean, you say near future, Is there, you you know, if you were to take a guess, what do you think that is? How near?
0: We could do it within 10 years. Uh, Wow. The way the world works, I don't expect it that fast. All right. I expect it in more like 20 or 30. And that would be not just the moon, but also uh, a subset of asteroids. Getting the asteroid belt is comparatively far away, but there's a subset of asteroids that uh, are in uh, near-Earth orbits, and we tend to think of those as hazards because, you know, the dinosaurs found out they were a hazard. (laughs) Uh, But mostly they don't hit us, and uh, some of them have incredible amounts of precious metal resources on them. And it turns out whether you're interested in near Earth objects uh, for defensive reasons or for uh, greed reasons, because you want the resources, either way, you need to develop the same technology to get out to them. And once you're able to get out to them, if need be, you can give them a nudge to get them out of the way.
2: Yep. Oh, yeah. And that's something else you touch on in the book. And I thought that was wonderful, is the idea of we need to keep track of these things because... We could end up like the dinosaurs, you know, while all are, are, are you know, arguing amongst ourselves. And next thing we know, what's that rock coming from the sky? Oh, yeah. Same thing that took out the air, you know. Yeah, one of those things. Yeah,
0: my sometime collaborator, Larry Niven, said, the dinosaurs didn't have a space program and look where it got them.
2: See, <laughs> see, I like that. I like that.
1: <laughs> Boy, there's the quote for you. The dinosaurs yep. didn't have a space program, and look where it got them. <laughs> oh, you know, if, if there's if there's a phrase that kind of kind of gels out, what it is you do, it's like he saw technology, and and he gave it a sense of whimsy and wit, and then he made it his own. And he made us all enjoy it. Um, His latest book is called Deja Doomed. And God, it's not something you want to miss. It's something you should really enjoy. It's available on Amazon as of May 25th. Do not miss it. Our guest tonight has been Edward M. Lerner. And I can't thank you enough for joining us tonight.
0: Thanks for having me. It's been fun. Sci-Fi
1: Saturday Night is the official podcast of Granite Con, Plastic City Comic Con, and the Upper Valley Comic Expo. We are also sponsored by Dreamforge Magazine, a superb magazine of fantasy and science fiction, and Comic Art House. Visit Comic Art House for some of the best deals on original art from dozens of your favorite artists. And if you're looking for a really great gift book for that rapidly approaching, semi-annual Fairbanks Melt Day celebration, consider a look at Sci-Fi Saturday Night's first anthology, My Peculiar Family, now on Amazon and barnesandnoble.com. My Peculiar Family, the audiobook, is available on Audible, because I'm not sure where else you can find it. Our intro production was provided by Rob Watts. For more of his amazing stuff, just look at RobWattsOnline.com, And don't forget to try the Watt sauce, we have we love it our outro was provided by lawrence made me cry their grooves can be found on lawrencemademecry.com and a whole lot of love to jojo and celine many thanks to the gang from his booking books thank you captain cam this is dome saying terry and Jeannie shared pain as lessons shared joy increased thus do we all refute entropy better things are coming stacy stay strong liz so Unless it's daytime. Good night, everybody.
0: There once was a girl from Nantucket. Good night,
2: everybody.